0: The old campaign for this credit card company was typically these puns, these vikings, and they're storming and pillaging and stealing, just wrecking, maybe it's a shopping mall, or a suburb, or a family vacation, and then this snarling, growling figure looks into the camera at the end and says, what's in your wallet? And I think the new version of this, it looks to be a uh, penny-pinching uh, father figure who is leading his kids and his, his, uh, I guess it's his mom or his mother-in-law, I'm not sure who it is, onto a freight train and they're talking about how this is really the way to travel and then they, towards the end, they throw mama from the train and then she looks up into the camera and says, so, what's in your wallet? We're uh, we're interested Jesus is interested more in your heart than what's in your wallet. But that said, because he's so interested in your heart, we have to talk from time to time about what's in your wallet. Because the two are very closely connected. I have a, My favorite uncle has a great saying, you never really know someone until you cut a dollar with them. Sounds cynical, but it's true. That's where we find out what our priorities are. Who our God is in all can. Um, I bring that up to you because we're going to be addressing that very topic this morning. Um, May the words of life, Jesus' words of life, soak through and be, in His grace, applied to every area of our lives. May it be. Let's prepare our hearts for worship. Please be seated. There are approximately 150 million abandoned, abused, homeless children living on the streets of our world's major metropolitan cities. 150 million. How should we respond to such a tragedy as that? Well, it would seem obvious that part of a response would, would have to be to creatively pursue means by which we could alleviate such suffering. Operation Peace Child is one such ministry, and you'll be hearing something of that in the coming weeks. Clearly our Lord calls us to that, to alleviate such suffering. Clearly He also calls us goodness gracious, to do nothing to contribute to such suffering. But it would seem also that he would call his own, to, not only to alleviate it, not only to not contribute to it, but also not to, to imitate it. That is to say that we, his children, would not go through life as though we ourselves were impoverished, abandoned, hopeless, homeless children living on the streets. We are His, after all. His own dearly adopted sons and daughters. But sadly, I think we do go through life as though we had been abandoned. As though we were on our own too. It comes out, even in this thing we're going to be talking about this, this morning, this issue of Generosity, this thing that our Lord calls us to in every sphere of our being, including in our giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. That's the text for this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. If you have your Bibles, I would implore you to read along with me. This is God's word to us. It's stunning, it's stirring, it's beautiful in what we see here. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you by His poverty might become rich." You pray with me. Lord, we bow before you now and we thank you for your word. In it are the, the very words of life. We stand. And relieved that we can do so upon it as sure and solid it holds. We stand humbly under it, for it's you speaking, and you speak well to us, your people. But there's not a thing here that we don't in some way chafe against. But there is not an area of our lives that you don't desire to form and reform that we might be like Jesus. Lord, our little gods are many. The idols of our hearts, multitude. And we confess before you now that one of them is money in ways that we don't even know. And we're afraid, and we're embarrassed. We're embarrassed, some of us even, that the preacher would bring this topic up. Or if there be any here who are offended, you minister to them We know there's been much abuse in the past. Perhaps even some of us personally have been on the receiving end of abusive teaching on these topics. Pray that you administer to us all. Your word is good. Help us to see, though, what it says. Not some caricature, but again, the words of life. In Jesus' name, amen read to you an excerpt from uh, a great little devotional book called uh, Faith Promise I'm going to be talking about that in a few minutes and I know for some of you that's in and of itself is a dangerous title that's been that concept's been abused in some contexts it's a great devotional guide written by Dr. Paul Koister. he used to be when I was at Covenant Seminary he was uh, the president there for a couple of years then he went on to be the head of Mission of the World MTW uh, and uh, that's where he is even today. Uh, he wrote this, and it is sweet. It's been a balm to my soul uh, this week as I've gone back and reread this probably for the second, third time. Uh, I want to read to you an excerpt, though, uh, something that he says, an account that he shares on day two of this devotion. Dr. Hugh McKean, a missionary who served in Chiang Mai, Thailand, told of an impoverished church in an isolated area of Thailand. The 400 members, each painfully poor, were diligent to give at least 10%, usually more, of their meager income to God's kingdom work. Though their weekly wages averaged less than 20 cents, they had done more for Christ than any other church in Thailand. They paid their own preacher, supported two missionary families in an isolated community, and were intensely interested in all forms of Christian work, especially work for unfortunates of all kinds. Their love for Christ overflowed with joy to make Him known. This church of the overflowing hearts, such as what they were known as, this church of the overflowing hearts was a church of lepers, Every one of them had leprosy. Now startling as this may be, shocking, amazingly, astonishing as this may be, that dynamic of the poor, or shall I say those who were seemingly so poor, giving so richly, is the very dynamic that we see Paul describing here of the church in Macedonia as he's writing to the church in Corinth. It's that very same dynamic that you see here. Now, to Corinth, Paul is is writing to the church in Corinth. If you've done any studies on 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the dynamic going on there, and uh, Paul's ministry in Acts, and the planting that took place, you know, you know that this was a church with whom Paul had no few problems. In fact, quite a bit of his letters uh, are are involved in addressing some of those problems. Some of the questions that they were raising. He had uh, had no little bit of contact with them in terms of uh, several visits, and it would seem that even some that are outside of the book of Acts, and he had sent uh, some of his representatives, Timothy and Titus, in different contexts to go there. Uh, There had been correspondence, multiple letters, not just the two that we have in the New Testament, in fact. Uh, So there had been lots of contact between Paul and this church, and it would seem that finally, as we 1 Corinthians, the effect of his rebuke and a visit that took place after that had had its effect. He, he, um, by the time he gets to 2 Corinthians, this letter, chapter 7, at the close of it, it seems that light had finally broken through. God's grace had shown itself in the lives of these people. They had come to see the light. They had repented and turned and opened their arms to Paul and his ministry, really to Jesus and the gospel uh, once again. Such that, after just talking about the grace of God in the lives of the church at Corinth, moving through chapter 7, he shifts then to say, let me tell you about the working of God's grace in the lives of these people at the church of Macedonia. Let that minister to your soul. Let it encourage you, my brothers and sisters in Corinth. And so we read in chapter 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then he goes on to unpack that. Now, I've got to tell you, as, as I was looking at this text over the last several days, looking at this passage over the last several days, the, the question came to my mind. What would cause people so poor, who seemingly had so little... To give as though they were so rich, as though they had so much. And the only answer I can come up with is this. They knew themselves to in fact be rich. And that impelled them to give richly. What do we see? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 It's the core of everything that we see here. It's the the very heartbeat. It would would seem of these believers in Macedonia, what Paul was longing to see more of in these people that he loved so in Corinth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Though He was rich, we can't even get our minds around how rich the eternal Son of God is. Rich in terms of possessions. Everything. Galaxies. Winds. Waves. Hummingbirds. Blue whales. People. All of it is His possessions. It's all His. All power. He made it all. His hands are upon it all, governing it all. All all possessions, all power, His. All honor, the angels bowing down before Him. Creation yearning for Him. All love. The Father, the Spirit, this inner Trinitarian relationship from eternity. Can I use this oxymoronic phrase? From eternity past. We can't even begin to get our minds around how wealthy, how rich the Son of God is in possessions and power and honor and love. And He left it. He set it aside to become poor for us. We can't get our minds not only how rich He was and is and forever will be, but also how poor He became. Think with me. We talk about this at Christmas Every every year, we ought to talk about it in September, too. He was born. Do, Do you get that? Moving through a birth canal. Slime, all that stuff. He was born. And in the most humble, abject, belittling of circumstances, going through the course of his days, buffeted by temptation bruised by rejection, broken by a cross and death and being buried. Do you get that? I, I don't. I mean, I do, you know what I mean? But to the depths of it, to the heights of it, I, to the widths and breadths. no, I don't. The heights from which he left, going to the depths to which he descended, Why? For these people, these Macedonians that Paul is describing here. For their sake. And they got it. At least to a degree, they they understood it. They knew that He did all that for them, that they might then become rich. Rich how? They understood at least to some degree or another, at least some poor degree or another, that the the hand of providence, the workings of salvation was for them. That they had a new status before God. Righteous in His sight. Forgiven. Free. His. His. The richest of promises, the most astonishing of an inheritance. Theirs. His poverty. For their riches. And so they then were gripped by such things. Being gripped by such things, they then gave so astonishingly richly. And then, okay, that's the first question. What could cause people to give in such a way? Then I... I wanted to skip this one, but I couldn't. What would cause me to give this way? What would cause us to give such ways? To throw ourselves with abandon into His work. Would it not be being gripped by the same things? There are say, that same Lord, in all of His wealth, and all of His richness leaving it behind, becoming impoverished for our sake, so that we might become rich, is that not the thing that would have to grip our hearts such that we then too would be longing, in fact, we would almost be insisting that we would then be able to to give in such ways. It, It would have to be. It would have to be. That's what we see with these Macedonians, these dear, dear brothers and sisters. They teach us that as we grow in our understanding of the gospel so too we should, I want to say naturally, really it's more supernaturally, but whatever, we should be growing also in our desire to give towards the work in advance of the gospel. And we couldn't find ourselves given towards doing anything else. I want to talk about three growing, uh, excuse me, giving trends. Giving trends this morning. I'm not talking about, please don't hear me, this is nothing that you can chart. There are no bar graphs, there are no line graphs, there are no pie charts. You can't quantify this, but you can see it, and you can describe it, and it's here. Giving trends, if you will. The first being, as we see here, as Paul's describing this burden to give generously. Verses 1 through 4. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty, listen to the adjectives here, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This severe test of affliction, as Paul describes in verse 2, we don't know what it wants. We're not sure. Was this something... Uh, inflicted upon, if you will, in a general sense, upon the population of that area? It's possible because there were a lot of problems there at that time uh, of of history in the Roman Empire. Or was this something specifically focused upon that church? We don't know. What we do know is how they responded. How they responded was with, as also Paul described in verse 2, a wealth of generosity overflowing on their Part. They responded, they saw things not according to circumstances. You could almost, given the extreme poverty that Paul describes here, you could almost expect, and you kind of get a sense that maybe Paul was almost expecting this, because there seems to be a sense in which he was surprised, but pleasantly so, you could almost understand if they said, No, we don't have anything to help these people. We've got it bad enough ourselves. Help me, help us. That's not what we see. Nor do we see them turning a almost said a blind ear, a deaf ear, a blind eye, a deaf ear to the needs. Of these brothers and sisters. By the way, this collection, what's going on here, the dynamics of what you see here. This collection is, as Paul is planting churches and visiting churches during the course of his missionary journeys, he is making a collection among these predominantly Gentile churches to relieve the suffering going on back in Judea, in the in particularly the Jerusalem church, which of course is predominantly Jewish. That's the collection that he's talking about here. That's what they're insisting on being able to participate in. That's what you see a lot about what Paul is talking about here in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. Okay, they see things, though, despite how extreme their poverty was, not according to their circumstances. Rather, instead of focusing in on that, they look beyond that to see the opportunity before them. Not... there's not a nearsightedness here, I guess you could say. There's not a spiritual astigmatism with these people. They're seeing not circumstances, they're seeing opportunities. They're seeing opportunities to love God. To glorify Him, to manifest His wonderful name, to, to, to let His love for the lost be, and, and His own be shining forth. They see opportunities to, to serve Christ to join with Him in the Great Commission. They see opportunities to show their love for Christ in, in real and tangible ways by loving His own, which of course He calls us to do. They saw opportunities to love one another, recognizing that they had been blessed richly and such that they then longed to be a blessing themselves, such that it became the burden of their hearts. They longed to pursue this. They saw it as an opportunity, not a burden, Earnestly begging, as you see here in verse 4, earnestly begging to have, an, to have a place in this offering. These Macedonians remind me of Reapy Cheap. You know Reapy Cheap? In C.S. Lewis' The Chronicles of Narnia, Reapy Cheap is this talking mouse. Eh, one to two feet high, ears like a rabbit. The heart of a lion. He knew no fear. Bold. His, his mind, his head, full of battles and honor and strategies and all these things. He, he knew no fear. He was the epitome of courage. Diving in to defend the honor of those whom he loved. Wild abandon. Oh, that I had the heart of that mouse. That's what you see here. This church in Macedonia, this heart, this, this, not, not this, can I just say, not this squeaking with fear. This little pip squeaking with fear is following our Lord, but rather this roaring, following a lion. Not, not, a life not typified by hesitation, but rather, Longingly, insistently, boldly living, and then thus, as an extension of that, boldly giving. Because, recognizing how richly we've been blessed. How, how Christ has poured out this wealth of riches, deeper, wider, broader, more eternal than we can ever imagine. He's poured it out such that we would then be impelled... To give and to give generously. That's the first giving trend. The second is this. Not just giving generously, but giving trustingly. Emboldened by this one whom we love in our service to him. Emboldened and thus in giving with faith. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will. They gauged how much they would give not according to their possessions. That was not the primary factor in what they gave. They they did not look merely at what they had. They defied all the practical wisdom, the practical wisdom, the sensible advice. They threw the damn calculator right out the window. And I use that word very seriously in this context. That was not a trivial slip. They threw it out the window. They gauged how they would give, not by their possessions, not by how much they had, and therefore their giving was not limited to what they had. They then gave beyond that. They were beholden not to fear and holding back, but rather to faith, And giving forth. They gauged how much they would give, not by their possessions, not according to what they had, but according to God's promises and what He had. Because this was not about what they could do. This was about what He could do. And such is what impelled and drove their giving. Knowing who He is and how He surely would provide for their needs as their Creator and their Redeemer and Sustainer. Knowing that He would enable them to be generous. Now think with me. He calls us to be generous. Now you you wouldn't wouldn't blush. You wouldn't blanch. You wouldn't turn an eye for a moment. You wouldn't blink if I said God calls you to be humble. You'd say, yeah, I know that. But if I say God calls you to be generous, you're like, whoa. But it's the same thing. In every aspect of our Christian life, He always supplies what He demands. This is not an exception. There is no appendix here. There's, you have footnotes, but it's not related to that. He always supplies what He demands. He tells you to be gracious, humble, and forgiving. And that He makes you gracious, humble, and forgiving. So too does He enable His people to give generously, that they might, having been blessed, be a blessing to those around them. What in the world? How else can you interpret what Paul says in chapter 9? Excuse me. Yes, chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. Let me read this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What we need, what I need, what you need, what we need together as individuals and as a body is not a materialistic mindset where all we see is right before us. That's all we can see. What we need is a Macedonian mindset. It sees beyond that. It sees way beyond that. A heart that's able to say, I'm giving, I'm enabled to give because He enables me to give. I'm able because He enables. That's true of every area of life, including including this one. Now, I know this raises questions. Raises questions, not rages questions. Well, maybe it does that too. How much should I give? Hmm. I think a safe answer is more than you think. Because this is a matter of his desire to stretch our faith. Really. His desire is to stretch our faith. So it's quite likely how much he wants you to give is more than you think. That said, let me take a step back from that question. That's a bad question. That's a very self-centered, man-centered, what I can do kind of question. The question is, not you don't want to ask, how much should I give? Because that sounds so much like, what should I do? Which sounds so much like, what can I do? Which really is a very short list. The issue is not what you can do, what you can give. The issue is, what is God calling you to do? That's the issue, in, again, in every area of life. No exceptions. It goes for here as well. What is God calling us to do? We wrestle with that and let him work out the details. That's the way the Christian life works. What is he calling me to do? And let him take care of the rest. Well, okay, fine. You got me on that one. Where will it come from? Hmm, good question. From him. What were you expecting? He is free to provide in whatever way He cares to. He's God. Remember that little detail? He's God. He is free to provide for us and enable us to give in whatever means He desires to do so. Some of us, even in this room, can speak to the ways in which, even in our poor attempts at trying to, to, to carry this out, He has provided for us in extraordinary fashions. A check at just the right time for just the right amount for just the right thing. And, or, or some gift that just comes right in a you know, tailor fit, quite literally. Or some word of encouragement that just becomes a balm to the broken heart. Just at the right time. Who was behind that? Please. Don't talk to me about odds. He can do it in an extraordinary sense. He can do it in an ordinary way. He can do this in, by our exploring creative ways for additional income. He can do this by ways of us exploring creative ways to adjust our lifestyle. He can do it whatever way he sees fit. But he is delighted, delighted to enable his people to give and to give generously. But it seems so little. What I have is so little. What do I do with it? Well, you're right. It is in the grand scheme of things. And frankly, he doesn't need it. But he does promise us to, to, to multiply it and bless it. And you don't know what he might choose to do through it. Another excerpt from this wonderful devotional. Uh, Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael brings us out in a quotation from the wise and well-loved Robert Wilson of Keswick. He stopped near a stonebreaker who, squatting beside his pile of stones, was hammering steadily. I will tell thee a story, the old man said, pointing with his whip to the stonebreaker who tapped stolidly on on and never looked up. There was one who asked a stonebreaker at work by the roadside, Friend, which blow broke the stone?'" And the stone breaker answered the first one, the last one, and everyone in between. You don't know what he will choose, how he will choose to work through what little it is that we have. The point being that don't despair over however much or however little or what, what use it will be. Leave that to him. He and he alone is the one who can take the stony heart and break it, and make it a heart of flesh. And he may even use and work through us to do so. As we recognize and just just, just run with, abandon this the reality. The reality that, that we have been richly, richly blessed. We are rich in Christ. We are impelled and then freed to give generously and trustingly. That's the, again, the second... Uh, Giving trend, the third, the last one is giving freely. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. These Macedonians recognized, well, let me put it this way. They, They gave themselves, and because they had given of themselves first, they then gave all they had. They gave themselves, and because of that, they then gave all that they had. They recognized that they, in no way, could be described as owners. Not of themselves. They knew themselves not to be their own. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. They knew themselves. They're very selves not to be their own to do with and to live how they wanted. And so therefore what they had was not their own to do with how they wanted. They knew themselves not to be owners but to be stewards. They were his, and therefore all that they had was his. And they were not free to do with what was his as they wanted. Psalm 24. Psalm 24 verse One, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Recognizing these things, that they were not owners, but that they were stewards, freed these dear folks in the church of Macedonia to then give freely and to freely give. Now, we are not our own either. We've been bought with a price. The things we have are not our own. Either. The Bible says, God says, we are but stewards. Freed then to give, and to give freely. To give all. All of it, with nothing held back. The bit you put, I'll just use this as an example, the bit you put in the offering plate, and the larger chunk that you hold back, is all, whose? His. It's all His. There's nothing that can be, when it comes right down to it, held back because it's already His. There are to be, to just bring in a discussion from astronomy for a moment, there are no Plutos. There are no bodies, these celestial bodies orbiting out there that are too small or too far away to then get denigrated outside of God's solar system of ownership, if you will. There are no Plutos. It's all His. It's all His. We've been made rich, impelled to give, to give freely, especially to the work of Christ. Verse 9, again, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. This is what gripped the hearts of these dear people in Macedonia, this is what impelled them to give so generously, to give so trustingly, to give so freely. This is what will grip and impel us as well. As people who know that we've already been given all, and whatever else we need will yet come. We are wealthiest, excuse me, we are wealthier than the wealthiest in this world. Our our hope is is deeper and more solid and more secure than the most hopeful in this world. Now, please, brief excursus here. I'm not denying, Paul is not denying, he was not denying the financial struggles that we go through. This is not some low-grade Buddhism being described here. A denial of reality as though pain wasn't really real, and it's just an illusion, and the things that you say you don't lack, that everyone else can see, is really there. No... This is not a low-grade Buddhism or denial of reality. This is embracing reality. That God has made us rich in Christ. We are then freed to give the whole of ourselves to His work. Again, wealthier than the wealthiest. With hope more secure than than the securest. Think again of the Church of Overflowing Hearts. Those lepers in Thailand. That's not a story of fiction I read to you a moment ago, nor is this. Think of Bill Gates. Where is he going with this one? Bill Gates, who for the last 12 years has been ranked as the wealthiest person in the world, who is one of the most generous philanthropists the world has ever known. Here's a question. Do you think maybe those two things are connected? They are indeed. He gives as he does because of the riches that he has. Well, here's a news flash. If Bill Gates has not Christ, he is a pauper. And it's all rags. We are wealthier than the wealthiest. Our hope is more secure than anyone else's in Christ. We're free to give and to give in radical, rich ways. May God open up our, our, not just our minds, but our hearts that we might become like these beloved Macedonians in every sphere of our lives. Let's pray. Or the riches that are yours, that you set aside. Those possessions, that power, that honor, that love, the riches that you set aside, the poverty you accepted and suffered for us from the moment of your birth through the, the pangs of your death. The riches and the poverty are beyond our ability to fathom. And at all for us, to secure us to yourself, to save us, to redeem us, riches, great as they are, were not too great for you to leave it all behind, that we might become rich sharing it all with you. Riches higher and deeper and more secure more lasting beyond our understanding or deserving. But not such that no response is in order. We ask that you would make us people bold and great in our giving, longing to discover, longing to pursue and seek out opportunities in which to enter. We thank you. For even the the ways this young church has been able to do that already. And we pray that you'd make it more so. May the angels be amazed at your work within us. Making us, because of a work of your grace in our hearts, like these dear Macedonians. May the angels be amazed. May the world be drawn by the stories of such love. And may you be pleased. Jesus' name. The one who made us rich. In his name we pray. Amen. As the ushers now come to walk us through this time of offering and giving, let us give with glad, glad hearts.